You know, this season, which so, culturally we don't really celebrate the Easter season like we do the Christmas season, right? The Christmas season begins like September 1st. It's sort of, the, you know, I think it just happens, boom. But in terms of the Christian calendar, this season, Lent and all that, that's, it's so funny. I mean, I was even listening to Tammy and being a non-liturgical church, we don't really get it. We don't get all that stuff, and that's okay. I don't either. But it is an important time of year. And so I've been trying to focus a little bit on that in the teaching in this series that we've been doing, God is Love. And leading up to Easter in the next couple of weeks. I don't know if we'll end at Easter, but that's sort of the focal point right now. Talked about a lot of things uh, in relationship to God is Love. Last week we talked about covenant love and the difference between a covenant and a contract. And how we have, we, we tend to, in our culture, view things legally in, as, as a contract. And so there's a tendency to reduce our relationship with God from covenant that it was intended to be to a contract. And I would encourage you guys, I, I felt like, I, I, don't, I hate saying stuff like this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I, I just felt like it was important. It was an important message. I would encourage you to listen to that. The, the, the teachings are available on iTunes podcast. You just go on, if you have iTunes, just podcast, search Portland Vineyard, it's there. Listen to that, listen to the series. To me, it's, it's a, it challenges some of our theological presuppositions and, and some of the way that some of us have been brought up in the church and some of the things that maybe we believed just to be true that we, we may have missed the mark a little bit on that. So I'm just, I just encourage you to listen to those. I was thinking about it. If you had an MP3 plug in your car, you could drive around and listen to me all day. How fun would that be? The only thing that would be better is if you could like, no, never mind. I'm not gonna say so today I want to continue. And the, the title today is The Power of Love. I almost didn't title the message that. I was going to change it. I love that, that term, the power of love. Some of you are smiling. If you're probably 40 or older, you remember... The Power of Love by Huey Lewis in the News. Horrible song. Um, and, and so I, I, in thinking of that, I knew that some of you would think that, and I did not want you to think about that. So don't think about that song. I, I don't want you, because I didn't want you to think about that while I was teaching, because it would be snickering throughout. So don't think, if, if, don't think about Huey Lewis in the News at all. Just forget that. Put that out of your mind right now. And we're going to talk about the power of love as it's manifest in the cross of Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord, help us to get that song out of our heads. Uh, I know I was going to, I actually was going to play it, but I didn't. Amen. You guys are, you're killing me. All right. Um, (laughs) How do I... I know, I know. It's the power of love. I can't. I can't I... No, no, I'm not going to sing it. Is it in the back of the future? Is it really? Okay, we have gone so far off right now. There's no coming back. Um, our text is 1 Corinthians 1 today. I, I have edited this. Uh, be just, you know, I can do it. I have a computer. Um, you might want to read the whole passage. I have edited it because some of the descriptive terms tend to make it long and cumbersome. You know how Paul writes. So, so I've, I've just brought it kind of down to the uh, 
point that I want to make today, but read it. Read the whole passage. Read the, the context. But 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse um, 18 and ultimately ending in verse 27 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The first thing I want to point out there uh, is the language. He says to us who are being saved, and that is an unusual term, I think, for us to hear. We don't often talk in terms of being saved. We, we tend to think of it much more uh, as, as sort of a moment in time. You know, you, you have a conversation with somebody and you'll say, oh, I was talking to so-and-so, and this person got saved, right? They, 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 were, they were praying with somebody, they went to an event, whatever, they got saved. We, we uh, you know, sometimes you, somebody's, you know, they're dating this person as he's saved. And so we kind of, it's, it's sort of, uh, very either you are or you aren't but in Paul's writing and really throughout the New Testament it's viewed quite differently than that and uh, the focus one of the reasons our focus tends to be very much especially in sort of the evangelical mindset and I I'm really I hope you guys understand I'm not critical I, I'm I'm reluctant to use terms like that. I don't like labels at all. But I'm going to use them just because I think it helps describe things. In the evangelical mindset, it, it really is sort of this black and white, in or out kind of thought process. But in the New Testament, it's really different than that. It, the focus isn't so much on our eternal destination, which is really what we're thinking about. We're thinking about that, you know, the classic evangelical sort of you know, thing, and the guy, you've maybe been asked this. I have personally been asked this at least two or three times over the course of my life, maybe more. If you died tonight, do you know where you go? And, and the focus is on our eternal destination. The focus of Scripture really isn't. Now, that's a part of it, and, and I suppose it's, it's, it's an important part. It's something you, you, you want to know about. Uh, but the focus of Scripture really isn't nearly so much on our eternal destination as, as it is the life that we have in Christ. It's, it's really on being made whole. It's really on walking out the shalom of God. And I, I need to do a whole message on the shalom of God. It's walking that out in our lives. And it's a process that frankly begins long before we're even aware of it. Before, maybe we, if you don't know God exists, you don't know anything about Him, God begins by His Holy Spirit to speak to you, to move on your life, to draw your, draw your heart towards Him. Really, it's a love relationship. It's, it's romantic in the sense that God is wooing you and drawing you into relationship with Him even before you're aware of it. And that doesn't end on the day that you become aware of that, it continues throughout the course of your life as that shalom becomes more real and real. And, and, and some of you can identify with that. You understand that as, as you spend time with God over the course of your life, that that peace of his presence, that, that knowing, that confidence, 
that security that it's going to be okay, I'm in him, that whole big thing. And, and that's really what shalom is. It's not, it's not just, the, you know, peace, the lack of war. It's peace, the presence of God in a very real way. That grows and it becomes more and more real and, and you have a greater, greater sense of security in it. So, so he says, to those who, who are being saved, to those of us who are in that process, to those who are being saved, to those who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. To everyone else, it's foolishness. It, it, it's, it's weak. It's weak. Uh, it is, to some measure, shameful. Certainly, to the kind of the natural mind, the cross would not be the picture of power that we envision when we think of power. The cross really does look weak. It really does uh, look foolish, but Paul says it puts the strong things of the world to shame. It puts the wise things of the world to shame. And so here I have, I have sort of a thesis statement today. My thesis is this. Everything the world views as strong and powerful is contradicted or put to shame by the power of the cross. So the cross really is powerful but is the antithesis of what we might view and think of as power. And one way to know, here, here's the thing, now if you're looking at the true power of God, is, is it, does it look weak? Does it look foolish to you? I was thinking just this morning, actually, early driving in here, thinking about that a little bit, and I, I thought of Mother Teresa. It's probably not the best example, but on one level, it's a great example because, frankly, she didn't look all that powerful. She was a, a wrinkly little old lady. Hey, I had a fun thing happen this week, speaking of wrinkly little old ladies. Um, you'll like this. We were at Food Bank. Mike and I picked up the food on Tuesdays. And so different agencies are coming and going while we're there, and it's a big warehouse. It's a lot of fun. So this, there's this gal. She's got gray hair. You know, she's older. I'm guessing, and I'll tell you in a minute, you'll get the punchline, but I'm guessing she's 75-ish. She's probably that big. So she's got this huge milk crate full of gallons of milk, and she, there's, there's a big floor scale that you weigh food out on, and she has it down on the scale, and I walk over to weigh my stuff, and I see that, and she's going to bend over to pick it up. I go, let me get that for you. She goes, I can get it. I go, I'll get it for you. She goes, I'm strong. I look at her, and I go, I'll get it. And she goes, bap, and she pops me in the arm. Like, right now. Uh, so we joked around for a minute. She was just cute as a bug. And then we were leaving, and, and Ruby, the gal who runs the warehouse, she goes, isn't she something? I go, yeah. She goes, you know, she's, she's almost 90. And I go, what? She goes, no, she's 89. In July, she'll be 90. Well, some 90-year-old lady just chose me off. Um, cute as a bug. My point is simply that the things that we view as power, in, in really in the presence of God and the reality of, of all that, are, are not power. And, and so, like we said of love a couple weeks ago, it really requires a supernatural revelation to understand that. You know, the love of God doesn't become real because we read about it. It becomes real when we experience it and we know it. And the power is the same way. It, it, it requires 
God to reveal that and show it to you. And, and, and so I wanna, I'm going to try to do this quickly. I was uh, hoping to, I don't know. Um, back to Genesis 3 again. Last week we, looked at, we talked about Adam and Eve. The enemy, the accuser comes and he seduces us to want to be like God. Not in terms of character. We, we are already like God in our character. We're created in the image of God. We're like him. But there's a, there's a, the, 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 the judgment aspect, the wisdom aspect, that is really something reserved for God. And the enemy comes and, and lies and says, no, no, the, you know, that, that won't happen. And so we're, we're, we become, and we talked about this last week. If you listen to that, uh, you'll, you'll kind of get the context. But we become accusers. We become like the accuser. We begin to accuse ourselves. We accuse others. We accuse God. We're blinded and we don't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Um, the same thing is true with power. We, we want to be powerful. We, we want to be the Lord of our own lives. We want to rule and call our own shots, do things our own way. And quite frankly, we want to rule and lord it over others as much as possible. To whatever degree we can, we want to exercise the power that we have over everybody else. And, and so what I, what I want to say is that's really a fallen impulse, that notion. And you guys know what I'm talking about. You've, you've, you sense that. We all have it in us. That's a fallen notion. That's not who we were created to be. It's really uh, tied to, and it's, it's really kind of one and the same, of, of that impulse to judge and accuse. All of those are the fruit of the tree of good and evil. That, that's what those things are. And, and, and it makes us feel better about ourselves, and it makes us feel superior. I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you, I'm stronger than you, whatever, whatever, I'm richer than you, I'm better than you, and, and we want other people to know that so that we feel okay about who we are, right? Everybody wants to rule the world. Or, and I won't sing again, but man, I just like, this is so bad, I probably need to, but Tom Petty, you know, it's good to be king, right? It's good to be king, it helps you make friends, it helps you get girls. Um, but, not everybody can rule the world. Not everybody can be king because if I rule the world, if I'm king, what does that mean? You're not. You're not. And, and if I'm right and, and you dare to disagree with me, then that means what? You're wrong. You're, you're wrong. And if you want to be king and you disagree, then what happens? Conflict results, right? And so I really, that fallen impulse to want to control, want to rule has led to so much of the violence, the hatred, the disagreement, the, the war, really, in, in, that we see throughout history. Because there's this conflict that goes on. It, it all comes from this lust for power, this lust for wisdom, this lust for control. That, that's why politics is so ugly. It really is. That's what happens. I, I had a thing. I was thinking, okay, what if we decided, I think, I, I'm going to try to impose this. I don't think anybody will buy it, but to make a new rule for all political campaigns, political debates, the, the, the new code of ethics is 1 Corinthians 13. You have to treat everyone, 1 Corinthians 13, in all political discussion. So let's just say we're going to have a debate. We're going to have Obama and John Boehner, and we're going to have some other people. We'll get Nancy Pelosi there, and, and uh, who's the Rubio guy? We'll get him. I, I think we should have Sarah Palin there because she's entertaining. Um, and then I think you need some media representation as well. So we'll have Rachel Maddow and Rush Limbaugh just to keep it interesting. Um, and th and then, then they have to they have to abide by First Corinthians thirteen. So well, hey, you know that's a very good idea. Thank you so much. I can really see your heart in that. 
Um, but here's another perspective. Maybe if we look at it this way, we could come to some agreement on how to better serve our nation. I mean, that's just not going to happen, right? That's never going to happen because we, we want to point fingers, we want to call names, we want to control, we want to rule the world. And so our tendency, and here's the thing, this is my point of all that, is that we project onto God, you know, God's power, God's greatness looks like what, how we view power and greatness. We, we project onto him our thoughts about those things, and we begin to define God not by his character and by his love so much as by his power, and we look to God as though God is up there fighting for control as well. Now, this part, I want you to really hear me. I want to make sure you hear me. I'm probably going to be in so much trouble, but um, I don't want you to hear me saying something I'm not saying. I want you to try to hear what I really am saying, but that notion is really pagan theology. Okay, it really is. If you, if you, I'm not, I don't study mythology a lot. What I know, I know Greek gods, Roman gods, that's who they are. They're, they're struggling for power. They want to be the most powerful. They want to be in control. Uh, in, in the Quran, Allah is presented that way as well, as the all-powerful God. And so back about the 4th century, that thought process started to sort of make its way into Christianity. And so for the last 1,000 years or so, you know, Christians, good Bible-believing people, have been really defining God as the all-powerful God and, and really viewing him in terms of his power rather than his love. The consequence of that ultimately is this. It, it blocks, it blinds our capacity to see the beauty of God's love. It really does. The, impl- the implications of defining God in, in, in terms of being all-powerful and in control are that if God controls everything, then God controls everything, even the ugly stuff, Right? So all the, all the mass murders and the torture and the, the disease and, 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 the, and the accidents and the famine and all of, all of that, you know, the evil rulers of the world, whoever they are today, God, they're all in God's control as well. And so again, like I said before, if you are viewing God that way, but we're talking about this all-loving God, you, you, it, it's hard to get your mind around that. It's really hard to get your heart behind that because you end up with sort of this two-faced God. Well, God loves me. He's, he, God is love. He's all-loving. But if he's all-powerful and he's all-controlling, how does all that stuff happen? And, and quite honestly, I think it's hard to be passionate. And, and to me, this is what's wrong with the church today. Sorry, It's hard to be passionate about really serving a God like that. I mean, even, see, if God's in control, even who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, God's in control. If, if I'm thinking, you know, my, my daughter, my son, my child, my, you know, they're, they're destined to glorify God by burning in hell in eternity because they're not one of his chosen, how do I, how do I really, how do I serve that God? I mean, that, to, to me, that creates tension in our hearts that I, I think is, is not, supposed to be there. I understand, I know that there are passages in the Bible that would seem to indicate things, but there are also, I mean, there wouldn't be, that theology wouldn't exist if there weren't, right? Somebody didn't just make it up. Um, there are also passages that seem to to negate that, and, and I think it's inconsistent with the larger picture of who God is. 
to me, the, the overriding hermeneutic needs to be the nature of God, the character of God, and, and it's inconsistent with that. A couple weeks ago, I, I said, if you want to ask God, and we spent a whole message talking about, look to Jesus, and we went through numerous passages that indicated that Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. And so in terms of God's power, I, I would say the same thing. If you want to see how the power of God really, really functions, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Consider, consider who he is, what he looks like as the perfect manifestation of God's power. Jesus is not micromanaging and controlling everything. The world isn't a puppet on a string for him. Now, understand, I, I'm not saying God is not all-powerful. I do believe that. I do believe God is sovereign. I also believe we have projected onto him our perspective of what power and sovereignty look like. I think what we see in Jesus in terms of the power and sovereignty of God are radically, radically different than that. I think when we look at them, they look foolish and shamefully, shamefully weak. There's nothing, there's nothing weak or foolish in an all-powerful, all-controlling God, right? Why do we want to control? We want to control because we're empty inside and we feel insecure, and it makes us feel better about who we are. It meets our needs. I, 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 do, I, I get value and worth from being in control, so... What is a God that's insecure and getting his value from that like? In instead, ask yourself this. How would a God who is love, a God who is perfect, eternal, agape love, how would that God express being all-powerful, being omnipotent, being sovereign? And, and frankly, we don't have to we don't have to try very hard to envision that because, because we've seen it. This is John 13. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin. He began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power. So, because of that, because he knew God had put all things under his power, he got up from the table and wrapped the towel around himself and washed the feet of men that he knew in moments were going to betray him, deny him, and abandon him. That's power, okay? That's power. That's not an insecure God. That's not a God who has to control everything. That is so radically different than any concept of power that we normally think of. It's so far out of the box. I mean, Jesus knows all power is his, and he manifests it by washing his disciples' feet. The God who spoke all things into being you know, the God who created the heavens and earth, who flung the stars from his fingertips and calls them by name, takes off his robe and puts a towel around his waist and washes his disciples' feet. It's so foolish. It's so weak. 
And it's so real. And it's so true. He's moments, not moments, hours later, arrested. And one of his disciples endeavors to use worldly power to stop him from being arrested, right? And you guys know the story. Draws a sword, cuts off the soldier's ear. I love Peter. You know, Peter, Peter is, he's, he's bad. Finish that sentence. Um, he's bad. You know, I could just see Peter, you know, but Jesus, no, 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 no. We don't do it that way. And so, you know, the, the creator of heaven and earth again manifests his power by loving the guy and healing the ear. Woo-hoo. You know, cleaning up the mess, right, is, is what he does. That, that's how he exhibits his power. He, he could have stopped it, right? We all get that. He could have called 12,000 legions of angels. I don't know how that works, but, you know, is it? he could have stopped it, but he didn't. Instead, the, the God of choice-based, self-sacrificial, other-oriented love allows them to arrest him, mock him, beat him, shove a crown of thorns on his head, crucify him, and then with his last dying breath, he forgives him. That's power. He loves these people as they're mocking him, as they're rolling dice, gambling to win his clothes, and his, you know, bloody, beaten, naked body is hanging there. He has one thing on his mind. Not, not, not his own comfort, not his own well-being, not his own life. The only thing he's thinking about is them. Their salvation, their forgiveness, their deliverance. He's thinking about them. That's foolish. It's, it's foolish in the eyes of the world. No one... No one would do that. No one would do that. We don't even want to be inconvenienced most of the time, do we? I mean, realistically. You know, really quick. Um, he, he uses power not to kill them, but to love them. Again, I just think about that in terms of power today. Whether a military leader, political candidate. Political candidate. I'm running for president. I'm going to run for president. This is my platform. Um, if I'm elected to be the most powerful person in the world, President of the United States of America, I, I, will, uh, I, I will promise you I will defeat Al-Qaeda. And I will defeat Al-Qaeda. My opponent may say I have no strategy, no plan. I have a plan. I'll tell you my plan. My plan is this. I, 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 will, I will find them. I will hunt them down, and I will find them. And when I find them, I will wash their feet. I will wash their feet, and then I will let them arrest me and beat me and mock me, and spit on me, and crucify me. And then in my final act, coup de grace, I will publicly forgive them. Well, I'm not going to win the election. It's just ludicrous. We, we don't see how true power really functions in the eyes of God. Other-oriented, self-sacrificial power looks so profoundly foolish and weak to the world. Here's the thing. we got to wrap. I, I should have been done already, but last thing I'll say is this. Brute force, the way we think of power, is, is functional in some ways. Brute force, you can, 
used to create the world, and God's got that covered. He did that. But you can't use brute force to turn the heart of someone and cause them to love you. You can't use brute force to turn an enemy into a friend. You can't use brute force to cause a person to follow after you. That can only be done, really, really, with a sacrificial, others-oriented, agape love that's ex- power that's expressed through that love. So let's let's stand up. I'm st- we'll have we're going to be in trouble a little bit, maybe. Um, hello. Let me just pray for you, and and I'm just going to. Um, we need to close. But I encourage you, if you would like prayer, just while, even while we're cleaning up, if you would um, make your way up here, and there'll be some folks up here that'll pray with you. But Lord, we just thank you for today. Pray that as we approach Easter and we consider the cross and uh, the foolishness of it, that you would remind us uh, it was the most loving thing that ever happened, and you did it for us. And help us to learn that, to embrace that, to walk in it, to learn to love others in that same way.